Again, for those listening, you can find more of this stuff at patreon.com forward slash creation instruction. And tonight we begin with Hebrews 13 verse 1. Hebrews 13 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Now, this verse is, you cannot be taken out of context with what we just finished in chapter 12. Because keep in mind, chapter breaks are human made. And so we've just got done talking about uh, don't be godless like Esau. And then he talked about the forgiveness that he brought. And now it's picking up here with this. So uh, in 12 verse, chapter 12, verse 28, he kind of ended by saying this. Serve God acceptably. And now it goes into this and says, let brotherly love continue. So what does that mean, I guess? Just kind of think about that a little bit. Um, I'm going to take you to Luke to kind of show you, I think, what some of this might be. But if you remember in Matthew 22, there was a, I believe, a lawyer who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be, or what is the greatest commandment? Jesus asked him. And what does he say? Yep, exactly. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what did chapter 12 end with? Serve God acceptably. It was talking about loving God. He's forgiven you, so love God. And now, he says, love your neighbor. And so in essence, what we're seeing here in Hebrews, without that chapter break in there, is what Matthew 22 was. Love God, love your neighbor, all of the commandments lie on these two. Now, we can kind of look, I don't know, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, we see that they seem to be divided up into those two things too. Those that seem to be with your relationship with God, and then those that seem to be with your relationship with one another, with, with your neighbor. And so that same uh, pattern is there. We see the same thing here in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up, tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's an important question. Now, if somebody came and asked you that today, <coughs> what would you say? What do I need to do to be saved? Yeah, that's pretty much... And yet, this is the question that's being asked. And he said, Jesus answered, he said, well, what's written in the law? And what I find fascinating about that is, in order to understand what you must do to be saved, he's taking you back to the law to get the answer. So he said, what's your reading of it? So he's asking a lawyer here, uh, an expert in the law, and it's also interesting that he calls him teacher. That's a very honorable title, especially back in those days. That was one of the most honorable titles you could have. Um, today, we view the law in such a negative connotation, but here, this is kind of like, you want to be saved? Well, what did the law say about how you were saved? I would say most people in the church would tell you, well, the law says you got to do this, and you got to do these sacrifices. That's how you get saved. That is a modern-day misunderstanding of the law. That was not even the understanding of the law of the people who lived through Mount Sinai. 
They knew that that never saved them. They always knew that they were saved by grace. David is constantly praying that. And I don't, we'll be talking about that more in further studies, but the bottom line is David understood that you know, his righteousness was not from his works. He says it over and over in the Psalms. I mean, I could give you tons of Old Testament verses. And so this idea that the law was for salvation in the Old Testament, and now in the New, it's just the cross, is not accurate. Okay? The law was not for salvation back then, nor is it for salvation today, but it points us to salvation. The law is good because it does that. He says in verse 27, what's your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So we kind of already talked about there's the, the greatest commandment, you might say. But who said that to whom? Um, this is the lawyer saying it to Jesus when Jesus asked, how do you see the law? So 27 is the lawyer's answer? Yep. Okay. And all he's doing is quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So, now, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So here again, what I want you to understand is that the law is what's going to define love. Right? Jesus asked, what does the law say? And he says, it says, love your neighbor. So you want to define what love is, you have to go back to the Old Testament and let the scriptures define what love truly is. And the law seems to be bound up with it, tightly. Uh, it goes on for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we're reading this in Hebrews, I'm, this isn't unique. When it ends in saying, serve God acceptably, brotherly love, it's the same pattern that is given all throughout. Leviticus, when, in Deuteronomy, when they're quoting it. Here, in Romans, in Matthew, in Luke. It's everywhere. Why? Because those Ten Commandments can be summed up in that, those two ways. He even kind of sums up all of these Ten Commandments here, saying the exact same thing that you know the, the lawyer was saying. Luke 10, 25, going back to that, it continues in verse 28. He said to him, you have answered rightly, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. Remember, I asked you, what would you tell people? How are you to be saved? Somebody comes, you should be saved. How many of us would say, well, then you need to love God and love your neighbor as yourself? But that is exactly what just happened here. Well, what does it mean to love God? means to keep his commandments. If you love me, do what I say, right? So it's all summed up in that. What, do you, what must I do to be saved? Obey God. 
And in so doing then, also keep the other commandments and love your brother, your neighbor. So now doesn't that point that back to then a works-based salvation? Depends on how you look at it. Some people could easily look at that and say, well, that's work-based, yeah. What must I do to be saved? Well, you've got to obey the commandments. Okay, well, then I'll go work on that. And I will do that to be saved. But that's not really what he's saying here. What he's saying is, first, love God. And when you love God, what do you do? You respond to his love in just doing it, in obedience. And that's what makes us such a, a sticky area is because it can be taken wrong by it just the, the same words, just depending on what angle you look at it, can either be legalistic or the most beautiful thing in the world. And it's just a matter of taking a step back from all of what culture has taught us about what the law is to see it in its proper perspective of it being a holy, righteous, and good thing, like Paul says, right? Is the law bad? Certainly not. The law is holy. It is good. It is right. But somehow we've gotten this negative connotation that it's not. Love, or, or I should say the law... As you know, Ron says, he hates us calling it the law. It's a way of life, the instructions of life. And so follow God, love him, and love him by doing what he says, not to earn your way to heaven. You already have that foundation, loving God. That's called faith. And we have to understand that believing in God is different than having faith in God. Faith is living out what you believe. Right? That's why the devil believes in, in God and shudders. And we need to take that whole context because people, well, what, what should I be saying? Well, you just believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's not going to get you there. Didn't get, it won't get the devil there. The devil knows all about Jesus. So, faith has to be connected to that belief. And what does, how, what does that look like? It means if I believe that Jesus is Lord then my faith walks after him, serves him, loves him. And so my belief does save me, but I really don't believe if I'm not, my body is not following my mind, if that makes sense. And so it's just such a fine line to walk, but one that I think scripture says over and over and over again and without understanding that those two are connected, they're married together in the Ten Commandments, we, we lose sight of that. In verse 29 he says, But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, interestingly, we're going to take you back to Leviticus to answer that. Who is your brother? Back to the law. In verse 19 or 17 of chapter 19, it says, "You shall not, or you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." It's interesting that these are all used synonymously. Brother, neighbor, children of your people—that would be Israelites. Isn't that interesting? Who's your brother? Everybody. everybody. Absolutely everybody. Um, so, uh, 
continuing back in Luke 10.30, and I'm just going to go through this quick because I don't want to spend too much time on this because you guys know the story, but the, the story of the, the Samaritan. Jesus answered and he said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, this is answering, you know, who's my brother? And so he tells a story about this man going down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves, he was wounded, and a priest comes along. Now keep in mind, a priest in those days is like, you know, the most respected pastor of today. Well, he sees him, but he's a Samaritan, so he goes to the other side of the road. And um, then it says here in verse 32, likewise a Levite. Now a Levite doesn't have to be a priest, but priests are all Levites. He arrives at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But another respected man is what's going on here. And it says, but then a certain Samaritan came. Now, I want you to just imagine, put yourself there, you're seeing Jesus talking to this expert in the law. As soon as he brought up the Samaritan, I can just see the guy just going, cringing. Because they despised Samaritans. Hated them. They were half-breeds. The Samaritans, you need to understand where they came from, and I, I think I've probably described this before, but when Israel were tw 12 tribes, all was good, Solomon then... His, uh, he dies, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes about. And those 12 tribes are ending up splitting into 10 and 2 tribes. Those 10 tribes became known as the northern tribes of Israel. The 2 tribes became known as the southern tribes of Judah. So in Scripture, you will often see Israel and Judah. Sometimes those 10 tribes were called Ephraim. So you've got the 12 tribes, but they're split. And you had kings of Israel, and you had kings of Judah throughout all the Old Testament after Solomon. Well, these 10 tribes, out of 19 kings, not a single one served God. So as a result, God brings the Assyrians and captures them and kind of scatters them all over the place and assimilates them into their culture. And they were able to kind of even live in that area, but they were just became so corrupted. Their theology was like American church theology. It just got so messed up that they didn't really know what was truth anymore. Now, the two tribes of Babylon, out of the 20 kings that they had, eight of them actually served God. And so they got to keep a little bit longer. Uh, Israel fell in about 722 B.C., and about 586 B.C. is when Israel, or Judah, fell. And what happened with them is the Babylonians just took them to Babylon, and then they later came back. Well, when they came back, these ten tribes had been so assimilated into the culture that they were no longer considered Jews. And these are the Samaritans that were hated by the Jews because they weren't real Jews. You guys don't even, you worship on Mount Gerizim, we worship in Jerusalem. Again, the theology had been so messed up and Jesus even pretty much says, yeah, you're not going to worship, worship there. Remember when he goes and he meets the Samaritan woman at the well? Not only are the disciples you know, amazed that he's talking to a woman, but he's also talking to a Samaritan woman. Double whammy. So that just gives you an idea of what's going on here. So you can imagine that when Jesus is bringing this up, 
This expert in the law is a little antsy. He doesn't like where this is going. And it goes on and it shows that this guy basically comes and bandages him up, takes him to a hotel, says, I'll be back. If there's any expenses, I'll pay for it. Take care of this guy. And then Jesus basically says, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And I'm sure he hated to say it, but he said, he who showed mercy on him. I kind of like how he said that. I don't even think he wanted to say it. The Samaritan. It was just kind of a way of beating around the bush. The one who showed mercy, because he couldn't say Samaritan. Kind of shows that disdain there a little bit. Jesus said, go and do likewise. I would say that that was a pretty big theological bomb. However, you know, it would be easy to, well, this is just a story, but keep in mind the, the point of the story. Who is my neighbor? And he says, the neighbor is even the Samaritan. Your enemy is your neighbor. And we need to remember that, especially in today's world among the globalists and the the, the silliness going on in society today. Anyway, Titus 3.14 says this, Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In, in essence, that's what the Samaritan woman or Samaritan man did. What Paul is teaching to the Gentiles here in the name of Yeshua. Meet urgent needs. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, uh, a replacement in our stead for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now keep in mind, that's a commandment of God. As a matter of fact, all of the Ten Commandments, half of them basically, are summed up in that, so we ought to love one another. Why, again? Because he loved us. How? Becoming a propitiation, dying on the cross, taking our punishment. That is why we love our neighbor. Kind of what we were going back to, how we started this. They are connected. You obey, love your neighbor, because he loved you. He gave you grace. Now, if you really do love him, you will be responding. And if you're not responding... I can tell you this, you have deceived yourself and you do not love God. You can say it all you want, you can go to church all you want. But if you are not striving to serve God, you do not know God. You have lied to yourself and you will be one of those in Matthew 7 who go before him and say, Lord, Lord, we perform miracles in your name, we cast out demons. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Absolutely. So where did they get off? Where, where did they go wrong? Because they were doing it out of legalism. The wrong angle. Okay. As a matter of fact, Romans even says this. It says, um, so what they sought so earnestly they did not obtain. Why not? Because they sought it as if it were by works, not by grace. So Romans answers that very question. He says... The Jews, they sought it so earnestly, but they didn't get it. Why not? Well, because they sought it by works. Not out of response of love for God. 
you can see why it's so easy to misunderstand this because there is such a fine line between the law being bad and the law being good. And all we have grown up in in American culture is law is bad, legalism, da 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 da. You know, there are certain things that will, you know, will raise the banner for that, you know, certain laws. But we get to pick and choose which ones we like and don't like. No, you don't get to do that. But that's what we're, without words, being taught in actions. We'll keep the big ones. You know, the big ten, well, the big nine. You know? And, and uh, yeah, that is a stretch even, you're right. Not committing adultery and, I mean, yeah, we don't even keep the big nine. Point being, though, is it's just to rewire our brain to understand, even in the New Testament, how the law is elevated and honored and revered and respected and explains what Jesus is doing. But we've we got to get that proper angle to understand that law, that it's not legalism, but a response. So John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Okay, keep in mind the context of what we've been talking about. Who's my friend? Okay, he's not just talking about those who are nice to you. Uh, Romans also says this. Um, it's not Romans. Um, I don't know where it is, but it, it basically says to honor the, your masters, even those who are harsh, not just those who are kind and considerate, but even to those who are harsh. Okay, so your friends are defined by the Torah, what your neighbor is. Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do not, or do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. How does God love? He sends rain. He blesses who? The just and the unjust. Those who are covered in the blood of Jesus, but even these globalist, sex-offending pedophiles that are out there, guess what? He sends rain on them too. I know that we in our flesh, it's like, man, I don't want you to, God. But you want to understand what God's love is? He's just been telling you who is your, your neighbor to everybody, and God lives that out here as well. And that's what the Samaritan man was doing, showing mercy to those that didn't deserve it. Deuteronomy 22.1, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And again, we're not talking about blood brother here. We're just talking about in the sense of what the Torah said was a brother. And he says, so if you see that ox wandering astray, you've got to watch out for them. Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox, what are you supposed to do? Slit its throat and leave it there? No. He says, you shall surely bring it back to him again. 
So this is what I'm saying. A brother and an enemy, they're put on the same plane in the eyes of Torah. And yet, when these people are saying, love your neighbor, you know, what, what all the commandments are summed up in love God and love your neighbor. This is an example right here. Love your enemies. God is loving and provides, but not to say that God's just going to bless, 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 you know, all the time. Sometimes he's going to allow bad things to happen, hoping that they will turn because God desires that none should perish, as Peter talks about. But there is God's wrath that will come. And there will come a day when his patience runs out, kind of when the, nobody's hired on the 11th hour kind of thing. He's long-suffering, patient with us, not desiring that any should perish. And we would do well to learn from that. Because we are to be loving to our enemies, just like God did. As I said, Torah describes what it is. And a few weeks ago I said, you know, when I counsel people, one of the biggest things is this, unforgiveness. If you guys hold unforgiveness in your heart for anybody, I, I'll tell you, I've, I've counseled, counseled some people who have gone through some things that it can only be the grace of God that would allow you to forgive. And I've seen just healing almost immediate. Why is that? Because of this. Because that's the command of God. And if you do not forgive, you're living in disobedience. So that's an important thing to, to remember. Matthew 5 verse 45 says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So it's in the New Testament as well. That's the kind of God ex love, that's the kind of love that God exercises. And that's the same kind of love we're supposed to have as well. So, verse 2, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. It continues here. Uh, kind of tying in brotherly love. Oh, and don't forget strangers, because strangers are your brother. And he says, in so doing, though, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Who do you think their mind would have gone to? As soon as Jesus said that, their minds would have thought of somebody, I'm sure. Any Jewish mind. Any guesses? Um, Abraham. Abraham. Yep, there's no question Abraham would have come to mind. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Gold star, yeah. <laughs> you get a piece of candy out of the jar. Genesis 18. I'm going to just kind of take you back to this story and we'll kind of go through it quickly. But you know that the Lord appeared to Abraham here by the terebinth uh, trees of Mamre. By the way, that's just Hebron. Um, Hebron is where King David was anointed king. Uh, so, just to put some perspective in, wow, 
here Abraham's just, you picture him out in the middle of nowhere in a tent and God is coming to him as an angel. And years later, this is where King David will be anointed. I mean, just, it amazes me how many important things take place in you know, certain locations of Scripture. But anyway, it says, As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the ground. Uh, the fact that he ran out to meet them, you know, in my mind, I always get this idea that, man, he hasn't seen people forever, so it's like, oh, people, oh, you know, and you're running out to see somebody. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is out of the heart that he had to serve people. I'm sure he was excited to see people too, but and maybe, I don't know at this point if he understood who this was. I don't know. But nonetheless, he's running out, and it's showing a character, a heart, that he has a willingness to serve others. Verse 3, he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by, uh, or you know, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Interesting, just the humility that you get from this. Your servant, what, 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 what can I do? You know, anything. I'll wash your feet. I'll get you some food. Get out of the, the heat. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. So Sarah's there at his side. And um, the three measures is kind of interesting to me because... We see that here in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. It says, another parable, he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And so here we're seeing the kingdom of God is like leaven and the same three measures that are used um, as a picture of an entirety, a wholeness, fullness. So... What that all means, I'm not sure, but I just find it to be an interesting picture there. So back to Genesis. It says, Abraham ran and heard, ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. A little creepy, but, you know, <laughs> it's a picture I get anyway, but that's not what it is. If you put your time in, uh, yourself in those that period, that's a servant attitude as well. I'll stand here while you eat. Let me know if you need anything. I mean, you, you see in, you know, Downton Abbey kind of thing. The servants are standing back. They're just waiting, waiting any way that they can serve. And that's really what the picture is here. Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. He said, I'll certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So, timing of this is also interesting. They didn't say any of this until after Abraham was loving his neighbor and had that humble humility about him. So, in essence, it's like when we get focused on kingdom work, when we're focused 
on what we are put on earth to do, God's going to speak. He's going to show you what he wants you to do, and it's going to be precious. But I can tell you this, as long as you are focused on what you have to do in this world and all the things, you know, trying to build a kingdom here, um, you'll never, you're not going to hear that call. I don't remember where it is, but in the Old Testament it talks about God's eyes are looking throughout the earth, looking for someone who he can use. And that verse is always like stuck in my heart. And it drives me a lot because I want to make sure that I'm being a good steward of my time, a good steward of my money, a good steward of, of you know, all that God gives me. And I think that when we have an attitude of service, God is going to reveal the preciousness of the work to be done to you. goes on, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I love this too, because when you're God's friend, he's going to share things with you. Abraham, remember, where I don't remember where this is, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Remember that? Last week we talked about Abraham. It seemed at least, uh, well, no, Abraham was shown heaven in a sense, right? Just like Moses was shown it and we saw extra biblical sources saying that uh, Adam was shown heaven. The Bible says Moses was shown heaven. And then I think it was the extra biblical sources that said Abraham was shown heaven. Because Abraham was God's friend, and that's what Scripture says. And so when it says Abraham, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, my day and was glad. I think, personally, that what he's saying is Abraham knew Jesus was coming. He saw my day. He saw heaven. He saw the cross. He, because God revealed these things to him. Why? Because he was a friend of God. In Amos... It basically says the Lord does nothing without first telling his servants, the prophets. It's like before God does things, he's going to let people know. I think that's biblical. Um, anyway, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? It's almost like, no, I'm not going to hide from him. I've already shown him so much. He's my friend. I'm going to let him know. And what's interesting is, do you hear him saying, oh, by the way, what we're going to do is we're going to just destroy everything. It continues. It says, I have known him in order that he may command his children and household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God says, I have a purpose for Abraham. He needs to know because he needs to tell his children about this. He needs to testify. In Psalm 78, it talks about this kind of stuff too, where it basically says, tell your children the wonders and the miracles that God has done so that they in turn will tell their children. 
And they, in turn, will tell their children. In other words, tell your children what God has done for you because it's a testimony and it's going to affect thousands and, and a multitude of nations just like this. And that's what's going on here. It continues in verse 22. Then the men turned away there and went toward Sodom. Abraham stood before the Lord and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You see what I'm saying? There's no place where Abraham says, by the way, I'm going to go wipe him out. He just says, shall I tell him? Because Abraham is going to be able to know. I don't know if there was more dialogue that went on here that's just not recorded, or if Abraham just like, it was downloaded into his mind already what Abraham was going to do. But the dialogue telling him what he was going to do is not there. It's just, should I tell him? Because he's a great guy. And then Abraham's like, are you going to destroy them all? Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? What I under, you know, Abraham was concerned for the righteous. It goes on, suppose there were 50 righteous, and then it goes to you know, 40, 30, 20. It gets down to 10 righteous people, ultimately. And then in chapter 19... Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. What I find interesting there is what is Lot doing to these strangers? The exact same thing Abraham did to them. Come in, be safe, let me wash your feet, I'll make you a meal, ultimately. Oftentimes what would happen in these days is you would go to basically town hall and people would invite you in. Now the homosexual community just destroys this. Uh, my gay brother basically tried to tell me that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was inhospitality. Okay? Because nobody would invite them into the home. So it's inhospitality. That was the sin. Let me rephrase your question. Should we do that for a Muslim? Absolutely we should. That's what our enemy is, isn't it? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Okay? This is why, guys, we can't hold grudges against people. Because that is not forgiving. That is not obeying the commandments of God. That's not loving. Loving God is loving your neighbor. And so absolutely, if there was a Muslim or somebody like that, I know that kind of goes up against our, our flesh, but that's what Scripture says. That's that whole Samaritan, you know, perfect. They, those guys hated Samaritans, and he says... That's your neighbor. So, now, we could go like a whole Bible study that would kind of bring questions in there like war. So is it okay to have war? Well, there were times Jesus said, go kill your neighbor, right? Or God said that. So there are circumstances, but we won't go down that road. The cattle and the women and the children and the, everybody in town, why 
Yeah. But I think that was because it was Judgment Day. Well, or I just thought maybe they were that you know to try to stop from intermingling and worshiping other gods. Well, there was part of that, but I think part of it too is Judgment Day because God did not allow them to go in when they left Egypt at first. He said because the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then later when they are able to go in, that's an indication then that the sins of the Amorites had reached its full measure and it was time for Judgment Day to take place. So. I don't remember where I read it. It was like 10 years or so. But it was said that no Christian has a defendable cause of being offended. Hmm. Oh, Stella's not here. I like that. Uh, say that one more time. No Christian has a defendable cause for being offended. I like that. Sayla and I were talking about that on the way home here today. That as Christians, it doesn't matter what people call me or say to me. We were talking about people being weak, snowflakes. So we, we've created snowflakes today because, you know, it used to be when we grew up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, we know sometimes they hurt, but the whole goal is to know who my identity is in Christ so that those words don't hurt you. And if we would train kids from early on, continue doing that, we wouldn't have a bunch of snowflakes today. But we do because we've taught them, oh, don't call this, and this is bullying, and that's bullying, and this is a bad word to say, and you can't call them this, and whatever, you know, all of this whole list of cancel, cancel culture that we've got, and as a result, we've trained kids who can't handle it. We need to train them in God's word to let them know this is who God calls you. This is what God calls you to be. And that we are not, you know, fighting for victory over all of these things. We are fighting from victory. We already have the victory won. Therefore, it doesn't matter what people call me. They can say lies all they want. It makes no difference. Because I'm fighting from victory. Yeah, exactly. So aren't we supposed to be offended by sin? Well, I think that's different. People calling us names versus sin, I think, would be a different issue. Okay. So, yeah, sin should be very offensive to us. We should, that should incense us. It's more like a righteous anger than offense. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the number of righteous people in Sodom I don't know, but there's a good possibility. Maybe his wife, his wife may have been drug along. Yeah. She looks back. The daughters raped their own father uh, right out of there. So possibly, but I know at least one. Because Peter tells me that Lot was a righteous man tormented in his soul daily by what went on in that town. And so Lot was righteous. In my godly family presentation, I talk about that a lot because if you would ask me ten righteous people in Bible, I would not even think about Lot. But yet the Bible says that, and I'm encouraged by that because oftentimes I would not put my name on a list of a thousand righteous people. And it's like, but wait, my righteousness is not from me my righteousness is from him 
And so I can find comfort in that sometimes. But the other thing I talk about why it's so important for us to live righteously when it comes to a family is you, your kids are watching you, your grandkids are watching you, your brothers and sisters are watching you, and other Christians are watching you. And so as a result, Lot was strong enough to live there and remain righteous. But look what it did to his kids. It affected his kids. And so one of the things I always would talk about too is like how we uh, as adults sometimes will tell our kids, you, know, you, you need to go out of the room, you can't watch this. What message did you just send to your kids? It's okay, yeah, when you get older you can sin, but not right now. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't certain things kids just can't handle, you know, maybe some violence or things that, you know, just topics that they're not ready for. I'm not saying every example, but you know what I mean. That sometimes it's because, oh, there's going to be some cussing and swearing here, so go out of the room. Sin apparently has an expiration date. You know, when you get to be 12 or 14 or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is, apparently, but that's the message we give. 13? Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, okay, so it must be true. Yeah. So anyway, um, verse 2, Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast. He baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So here comes it. He washed his feet, their feet. He welcomes them in. He bakes bread. Same thing that Abraham did. Now before they lay down, the men of the city and the men of Sodom, both old and young, and all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, don't do such wickedness or wickedly. So you kind of know the story here as it goes on. The angels open up the door, blind the people, and that word blind there doesn't mean like, oh, I can't see, I can't see. It's confusion. Blindness, confusion. You might say maybe in a New Testament, I don't know how that Greek word plays to this Hebrew word, but God will send them a strong delusion. I almost feel that's where we are in our country today, that God is like reached down and everybody's like, duh. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it is the only way to explain it, that it is from God. But in essence, in this story, that's what that word blind is when he strikes them with blindness. It isn't a loss of eyesight, it's just confusion of the mind. I do not have an answer for that. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that the culture had affected him and that sometimes that there was a, one cultural norm outweighed another cultural norm and that kind of like this Marcus Luttrell, that they were willing to give their life to protect this person. Um, I don't know if he knew that they were angels, uh, but I don't understand. I wouldn't do that. It seems like that would be wrong regardless. And obviously the angels were like, no, 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 you're not doing that. And so, what's that? Well, oh, they, I'm sure they would have. It would have been just like that Benjamite, Benjamite, Benjamite woman who, yeah. When we read that in Judges, you have to understand the Bible is filled with stupidity, okay? 
because, as Judges says, it, it says it twice in there, that, yeah, there's context that's important on that one, isn't it? Yeah. I can see that one being taken out of context and thrown all over the place. Yeah. There you go. It's filled with the stupidity of people because. This week in the church, Yeah. The, um, in the time of judges, it says twice in the book, one is at the very last verses, it says, when they had no king to tell them what to do, they all did what was right in their own eyes. And that is what's happened in America, I think. When they have no king to tell them what to do, we have let our king, God, be dethroned. He is no longer the creator God, therefore he does not set the rules, therefore we're not responsible or accountable to those rules. So what do you do? Whatever is right in your own eyes. Yep, our churches are filled with that kind of... I don't care what the Bible says, what matters is how I feel. My emotions. And, no, you go to God's word. But anyway, wrapping up, I've got two slides here. Matthew 25, verse 35 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. This is ultimately what Abraham did. It is what Lot did. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Very similar situation to the Samaritan, all of these stories that we've been looking at here tonight. And so when Hebrews is talking about brotherly love, this is what we're talking about. I think the contrast between this verse with people saying, I didn't even know we were serving the Lord as compared to the verse that says, we cast demons out in your name. How it's do you not do it right? Incredible. Yeah. One was out of an attitude of earning God's... What, what do you mean? I, I did these things. I earned it. I deserve it. This guy's like, what? Well, we, we don't deserve anything. They don't even recognize it because it was just out of faith. That's a, a good point in the sense of the difference of the law from different angles. Good point. So... When he also says, in so doing, some have entertained angels, it's just kind of like what I was saying before. Sometimes there's, there's blessings. You know, I don't know if they knew that they were entertaining angels right away. Abraham or Lot. But nonetheless, there was a blessing in it because they were doing what they were supposed to do and being obedient to the Torah that hadn't even been given at this point yet. This verse continues and says... When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I remember when I saw Jesus, and maybe some of you heard me tell this story already. He was out at Walmart parking lot. Yeah, well, he was kind of by the bench. They used to have a bench outside at Walmart. It was when it was Walmart was in the other store there. And uh, Jesus was sitting on the bench. And uh, I came out of Walmart, and I just kind of waved to him and you know, said hi real quick, and that was it. And I know you think I'm funny. No, I, it was Jesus. 
It was. You going? Yeah. Because I remember coming home and I was reading the Bible and it said this verse right here in Matthew 25. This guy was a homeless guy. He didn't smell good. He didn't look good. You know, he just, he was down and out. And all I did was just, wish you well, kind of thing. And I was really convicted by this verse. It's like, when did we see you? But when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And I remember praying, Lord, I want to see Jesus in everybody. I want to see what you see in them. I don't want to see some pierced up punk. I don't want to see some, you know, just drug addict. I don't want to see some, you know, bum out on the street. I want to see what you see in that person. And I know that God has answered that prayer in part, little bits, and He continues to do so in my life. The more and more that life goes on for me, the older I get, the more I do see that. And I, Ray Comfort, I know, talked about this too, and I, I would pray the same prayer that that if it takes the flames of hell, that we can see the flames of hell licking at somebody's feet for us to go over and share the gospel with them, then by all means, open my eyes so that I can see that person is going to go to hell. I mean, who of you, if their house was on fire, wouldn't go and knock on the door and say, get out of the house, no matter who it was. You'd try and get them out of the house. And if we truly believe that people are going to hell, then... If that's what it takes for me to have a passion for them, then let me see that. Because we should love them enough to go knock on the door and say, Get out, you are about to die. And this verse is basically, to me, that's, that's what this is about. It isn't just about food and clothing. It's also about the salvation of the lost. We have people everywhere out there that do not know Jesus Christ. And they are going to perish. I think that's why you know Mark and Matt and so, Greg and so many of you guys, just I stand in awe of you sometimes at your service for people because that's what you're doing right here. And uh, you guys have a gift in that that is wonderful. I've brought it up before, but it's just like that's what, that's what we are supposed to be doing. And so as we look at that verse in Hebrews, it's so easy to just take these few words and, just, and be done and move on. But I think you need to stop and meditate on what that means, to have brotherly love. Be careful in entertaining strangers. Because in so doing, some have entertained angels or Jesus himself. So with that, we'll close in prayer. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. Open our eyes that we may see, just as we've talked about here tonight, Father. Let us see what you see in people. Give us a, a love and a passion for the gospel to be shared with the lost. Help us to see you in them. Help us to see the danger that they're in and just move us to, to move outside of ourselves 
and to do what you've asked us to do. You've called us. Let us hear and let us move. In Jesus' name, amen.